Welcome everyone to Roger's List. This is the podcast where I am watching every single one of Roger Ebert's great movies. My name is Steve Gunley and I'm a blind knuckleheaded squirrel. Uh, my guest today is Dynamite and he's got to explode sometime. So please welcome Carl Horberg. Hi, Carl. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing really well. It's good to have you on. Thank you so much for agreeing to do the show. Um, we are talking today about a movie called In a Lonely Place, uh, and this is directed by Nicholas Ray. It was released May 17th, 1950, and it stars Humphrey Bogart, Gloria Graham, Frank Lovejoy, Martha Stewart, and Jeff Donnell. So uh, I want to just preface, the, preface this by saying I went into this movie completely blind. I have not seen it. I've heard the title, but I really didn't know anything what it was about. I didn't even know Bogart was in it until I like went to rent the movie. And then I got real excited because I'm like, ooh, okay, this looks like film noir. I'm into this. All right. And then this movie absolutely floored me. Like, I was not prepared for how complex and beautiful and brilliant this movie would be. Oh, my God. It blew my mind. I have so much to say. But firstly, I wanted to ask you, Carl, why did you want to talk about In a Lonely Place? Uh, well, I just wanted to say Dick Steele as much yeah. as I uh, <laughs> First time I heard that, I'm like, wait a minute. I had the subtitles on. I'm like, oh, my God, it's Dick's D-I-X. That's the best in the world. This is the coolest name. I'm 1,000% on board. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, he's the original Harry Hole, I think. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it's. Uh, I think as you alluded to, it, it is uh, certainly not an underrated film, but an underseen film. Uh, yeah certainly overshadowed, I think, by the two other kind of pillars of the 1950s cinema world, uh, All About Eve and Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. Um, so it's not, yeah, it's not very, very well known. So it's great. Uh, obviously, it's fantastic. Roger Ebert was a proponent for, for it. Uh, but it's a fantastic film. But it has perhaps Bogart's best performance. Uh, he is amazing in this. He just crackles. Um, and I think it's unique in, in terms of a film noir too. I mean, it, it's, it's categorized as a film noir, but really it is more of a romance, uh, film, uh, between Bogart, uh, and Gloria Graham. Um, but it also is just very, it's very bleak for a noir or even for a romance. Uh, it has one of the darkest endings of any film noir or romance film I've seen, uh, so there's just a, there's a lot to like about it. There's a lot to talk about. Uh, it just, a, it's an amazing film. It's, it's intensely rich. And I think you're exactly right. Like this, this is, yeah, absolutely. For, for quick reference, this is a film noir. It's got all the hallmarks and I would say it's like 90% exactly what you'd expect from a film noir, but the, the turns that it takes at the end are, so unexpected and so real. I was not expecting them to just, uh, you know, Hollywood movies of this era pull their punches, you know, kind of by necessity. The Hayes Code, it's waning in power, but it is still in effect at this point. So you can't really do anything too edgy, you know? I often think about the movie, a good example would be the movie Red River with John Wayne, Montgomery Cliff. It's setting up this whole conflict, this entire movie. They get in a fist fight, and the movie ends with them just like, what are we doing? This is crazy. Let's be friends instead. And then they run off into the sunset and everything's happy. I'm like, you just kind of undermine the dramatic tension. You didn't follow this plot to its logical conclusion, but in a lonely place absolutely does. It follows this through to the logical real conclusion that it would have here. 
Um, yeah. So, and this this uh, is also one of the most available movies I've found that we've talked about on the show so far. It's free on oh. Prime. It's also free on Tubi, which is a completely free streaming service. You have to watch it with ads, but that's not a bad deal for that. I mean, so this movie is available. So uh, if you're listening to this and want to watch it, it's 90 minutes. It's a very easy watch. Check it out right now. I'm going to sneeze. <laughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> All right. Got to edit out that sneeze later. See if I forget. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll, so I'll let's... Too, I mean, w- one thing that makes it interesting, too, in terms of film noir is there's central to the plot is this murder uh but the movie seems to have no interest in solving this murder uh it's it's wrapped up towards the very end yeah uh, but so much of the plot is spent spent on the relationships uh and on the characters uh and where other film noirs is very much driven by the mystery this kind of this is a very very much a second thought in this movie when you were watching this movie for the first time, uh, did you think that he did it, or did you did you have that suspicion, or did you know that it was going to go in the direction that it went? And I guess I should also preface, if you are going to watch this movie, which I highly recommend, uh, go do it before we have this conversation, because there are many spoilers, and uh, it's best to go into this movie fresh. But yes, yeah, sorry, did you have an idea of where it would end up? I did. I mean, there's the, I think, very famous uh, kind of, you know, a reenactment scene at a dinner, Hmm. Uh, which is uh, supposed to set you on the path of like, okay, Bogart uh, or Dix has yeah. a very kind of clear vision how this murder played out. And yeah. the use he uses is, oh, well, I'm a screenwriter. I think of these things all the time. Uh, but I think the the movie sets you up to think, uh, obviously he did this. Yeah. Uh, and also as an alcoholic, he has these blackouts. He's not sure. He can't keep time. Um so it, it does it does set you kind of down that path. So certainly I I I'd assumed he he did it. Yeah. The the poster the original poster for this movie said this is the Bogart picture with the surprise ending. Mm. So I was kind of looking for something like I I could tell you know the movie was leading us in that direction and then my thoughts started to turn to wait is the is the twist going to be that Gloria Graham is the murderer mm. because there's something very strange going on with her. She has kind of this uh, this backstory that isn't incredibly well fleshed out. She's got this strange relationship with this older woman who's kind of like uh, her, her, he treats her like her ward, you know, like she's, mm-hmm. she's managing her life and her career and giving her a massage and like yeah. telling her what to do. We hear tell that she escaped from this man named Mr. Baker, who we assume is just kind of this rich man who is keeping her, you know. Uh, but we don't really know a whole lot about Laurel and about where she's coming from. And I thought that's kind of where it was going. Um, but then as she started to get more suspicious, you know, it seemed like we were, we were, the perspective shifts in a very interesting way. Yeah. Cause we open with Dixon and then we end up kind of just shifting away from him and going into Laurel. But uh, we do still get to see enough of both of them to get a good sense of who they were. Uh, before we talk too much more about the movie, I want to go a little bit into our director, Nicholas Ray, uh, I was only familiar with Ray as the director of Rebel, excuse me, Rebel Without a Cause, which is obviously his biggest uh, hit movie with James Dean. But looking into his history, I've I've come to learn that he is he's a great filmmaker. He is a, a very tragic kind of guy, and he's also kind of a big weirdo creep. Uh, so he's he's all three in one. Uh, so he was born Raymond Nicholas Kinzel in 1911 in Wisconsin, and he got his start in the entertainment as a radio announcer, and eventually he graduated to theater uh, before he decided to pursue a career behind the camera. 
His first film as a director was They Live by Night, which is an acclaimed film noir that uh, was shelved for two years because he had the misfortune of uh, finishing the movie right when Howard Hughes was uh, selling RKO, uh, and so it was kind of a big mess. Oh. Um, so In a Lonely Place came out four years later, and that was seen kind of as Ray's big breakthrough. And uh, it would lead to other successful films, including The Flying Leathernecks, On Dangerous Ground, and a movie that we're going to talk about later on the show, Johnny Guitar. Uh, at the same time, Ray entered into a very, very tumultuous and messy marriage with the star of this film, Gloria Graham, uh, who was brilliant and tragic. Uh, she she was an Oscar winner in 1952 for The Bad and the Beautiful. Uh, she sadly passed away at the age of 57. She had some very severe uh, drug addiction problems, mental health problems, eating disorder problems. She she had a very tragic life. Uh, so at the time, both Ray and Graham were drinking a lot. They were using drugs a lot, and that was just kind of exacerbating things. They actually separated during the making of this movie without letting anybody else know uh, Ray wound up sleeping on set uh, until things got sorted out. And they finally finalized their divorce in 1952 because Ray walked in on Graham in bed with his 13-year-old son, her stepson. Uh, and that was kind of the last straw for him. She actually wound up marrying the 13-year-old son a few years later. They were together for most of the rest of her life. Um Still, it's a bit icky, and Ray's got a little bit of that, too, because in 1955, while he was making Rebel Without a Cause, and he was 44 years old, he entered into a relationship with 16-year-old Natalie Wood. Very creepy. Don't like that at all. Um, So Ray continued to work steadily throughout the 60s and 70s, but his behavior became increasingly erratic. Uh, His drug and alcohol abuse was getting out of control. To give you an idea of how bad it got... Uh, Ray was good friends with Dennis Hopper since they worked together on uh, Rebel Without a Cause. And he went to Texas to the set of Dennis Hopper's movie, The Last Movie, which is a famously troubled, drug-addled production and kind of a vanity project from Hopper, who was out of his mind on drugs at this time. And apparently Ray was becoming so difficult and was using too many drugs that Hopper had to ask him to leave, had to set him up somewhere else. So Dennis Hopper sent someone away for abusing <laughs> drugs too badly. That kind of gives you an idea of uh, the level that Ray was at this time. He uh, Ray would go on to pass away in 1979 at the age of 67. Uh, he had lung cancer. And he left behind just a very complicated and fascinating legacy. He, uh, he wound up getting fired from two different movies he was working on, one just because he was being difficult and one because he had a heart attack induced by drug use. Uh, and had to be replaced. Like he, he was a difficult guy, uh, but he he made some really intense and interesting movies. And I think this is one of his crowning achievements that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, were you familiar with the source novel of this uh, uh, movie, any by any chance? I wasn't. Uh, and my understanding, it's it's very very loosely based uh, on it. Uh, you know what's what's I think what's interesting about the source novel though is it was written by a woman. It was Dorothy Hughes. It's a novel yeah. from 1947, and you're exactly right. It was a very very loose adaptation. Kind of pretty much the similarities begin and end with the name Dixon Steele. Uh, in the book, like there's no question that Dix is a murderer. He is a spree killer. He is a, he is a serial killer before we had the word for serial killer. He's a multiple rapist. He's like, it's, it's like a very Jim Thompson level, like killer inside me or population 10, uh, 1280, like where it's being kind of narrated from like a dispassionate killer's point of view as if everything's kind of normal. 
So this is a very, very different movie than what it ended up. Is he still a screenwriter of the novel? No, no. Okay. Uh, I think he's he's just kind of a spoiled rich guy living off his uncle. It's more yeah. of a talented Mr. Ripley kind of vibe. Like he's just trying uh-huh. to social climb. Yeah, entirely different. Apparently, Dorothy Hughes saw the movie and didn't care at all. She's like, she's like, no, no. I, I, she's like, they made a great movie. Gloria Graham was a group, gave a great performance. Like, I have no complaints. And she still got paid. So, you know, yes. hey, you should, should, they should, everyone should have that same good attitude. It's like, yeah, they, they didn't make my book, but they made a great movie. Like, that's kind of cool. Uh, yeah, so the original screenplay more directly resembled the novel, and then the, pro- the project was extensively rewritten when Nicholas Ray and then when Bogart came on. Uh, and the final product is pretty much nothing like the original book. Um, they did have an original ending. The original ending of this movie saw Dixon strangling Laurel to death during this fight, and then uh, it ends with uh, Brub showing up, Telling uh, to tell uh, Dix that he didn't that he solved the murder and that he's in the clear, and then only to arrest him for Laurel's murder, and then it kind of it's taken away from that. Uh, that was the original ending in the script. They shot this ending, and then when Nicholas Ray was rewatching it, he had an instant terrible reaction to it. He just decided this was too neat. This isn't what would have happened in real life, and he wanted to convey a little bit more complexity. And so that's how we ended up with the ending that we got. And you have to imagine that his marital problems at the time with Graham were informing a lot of these decisions because this is a extremely tumultuous romance on the rocks and it's going badly, just like his relationship with Graham was going badly and he was inevitably heading towards this end. But you're not going to murder somebody, you know, it's, that isn't how, that isn't how relationships end in real life. Even the extra toxic ones, you don't murder each other. You 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 leave, and it's bittersweet, and it's sad, and it's more melancholy, and it has much more impact than if it was just kind of this seedy ending. I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think it would have been better if it was a little neater? No, I mean, uh, the ending as it is feels much more radical. It's much more ambiguous, much more open, um, and it's surprising that the studio didn't push for the 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 murder twist ending, uh, which feels very Hitchcock. It feels like a plot straight out of like an Alfred Hitchcock presents, uh, yeah. where you know the the again the movie too leaves open the question of how violent uh, Dixon is, yeah, uh, and what his past is. We've seen him, you know, in the very opening scene, we seen we see him with like a trigger temper. Uh, assaults uh, kind of a punk director yeah, uh, for just being rude to an alcoholic actor. So I, very- I made in my note that it was an evil Paul F. Tompkins. That's exactly <laughs> what that guy looked like. Yeah, I wanted to punch that guy too. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that guy is a total, uh, was a total asshole, but at the very outset, we get the sense of like Dixon does have, um, he's, he runs very hot, he can go off at any moment. Uh, and the movie builds on this, right? We, there's a... Yeah. There's a climactic car crash scene where he beats up a college football player. Um, and so I think the the original ending uh, kind of lets us uh, have our cake and eat it too. And that, okay, we see, we see Dixon as finally he's arrested for the, his crimes. He gets punished. Uh, whereas the more ambiguous ending, as uh, in the film... Uh, leaves it open. We don't know, you know, Dixon's been given several second chances. Will he be able to finally find redemption? 
we don't we don't know. So I yeah, I much prefer the the ending as in the film rather than the original one as written. It weirdly, it, I think it would have been so much less impactful if it had just been as clear cut as that because it would have just answered all these ambiguities. It's not like it's like oh yeah, okay, he is violent enough to murder. I think the tragedy of this story is that this is something that Dixon has to learn about himself. He has to mm-hmm. see in no uncertain terms that he is the person who is capable of doing this. And the fact that he's able to stop himself means that he's not beyond hope. But this this person that he has become has gotten out of control and he has to reckon with it now. Mm-hmm. And and he it, it this costs him. Like this is this, you know, this relationship is over forever. And this was like his one. This was a a, a real this was a love affair. And you really feel the affection between the two. Um it really just amazingly impactful. Um, a little bit about Bogart. Uh, we're going to talk about Bogart a lot on this show, and so I'm not going to go too much into his history. But at this stage in his career, things were kind of stagnating. He's a, uh, almost a decade off of Casablanca, which is his biggest hit. Uh, African Queen hasn't happened yet. And so he's still like a solid Hollywood star, but he's been stagnating a little bit in these tough guy roles. And so this role really appealed to him. And... From what I can tell about Bogart's personality, uh, Dixon Steele is very, very close to what the real Bogart was. He was very charming, uh, enigmatic, and he was quick to violence. He would start a fight over nothing. He would get moody over nothing, you know? He could be very unpredictable and uh, difficult in ways like this. Uh, So it's interesting to see him inhabiting this character that is so much like himself, you know, and I agree with you. I do think this is his best performance. Like before this, I would have said Fred C. Dobbs or something like that, you know, and that was kind of his great villain turn. And I don't think anything is that so, I don't think you can like just straightforward call Dix a villain, you know, in the same way that you could call Dobbs a villain um, because he's just much more complex and layered than that. But mm-hmm. it's just such a rich performance and that I think that he's drawing on that real experience is really uh, making a difference. Um, yeah, but I agree with you that that opening scene really tells us everything we need to know. It's like he pulls up now, a car pulls up next to him. He's kind of flirting a little bit with the girl who's talking to him. The big gorilla driving the car like gets in his face and he is ready to get out of his car on the street and beat the shit out of this guy. Like he is ready to go within the first five minutes of this movie. He's in almost three fights, uh, which is, you know, that, that tells us everything we need to know. But he's also being treated with respect. He's got his friends. He has people that he cares about. So he's not like a sociopath or a monster. I think that's why the character of Charlie, the uh, drunken thespian, as he calls him, is a very mm-hmm. important character because he he connects Dix to humanity when things start to kind of spiral out for him and kind of mm. keeps it uh, he keeps him grounded because there is this helpless person that he cares about. Um, that, and I thought I think it was genuine that he cared about him, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think to uh, the Charlie character exists, I think, to give Dix a window in his, into his potential future, right? Yeah, uh, in yeah. Moments, it's also established that Dix is, you know, he is a screenwriter, but he is washed up. One of the gentlemen at the bar says, oh, you, you never, you haven't had a hit since before the war. Yeah. Uh, and they're trying to convince him to write this screenplay that'll, that'll, uh, that bring him back into the fold of Hollywood. Yeah. And I think in, in Charlie, who is an alcoholic and is constantly begging for money and drinks, uh, Dick sees his, his potential future. Like this 
might this may be him uh someone who's forgotten that people just kind of cast aside uh and so he he kind of takes charlie under his wing and and protects him yeah absolutely and making this into like a show business story is an interesting touch because you know you mentioned two other great movies of 1950 which were sunset boulevard and all about eve which are both like expressly show business satires kind of down the line. And this one has a tinge of that because he is a screenwriter. He's, he's, he's a demented mind who is putting violent images on screen. And you wonder, it's like, is this a channel for him or is this kind of a result? Is he becoming more violent because the screen demands it? Or is he dumping his demons onto the page and putting it on screen? And is that infecting other people? You know, and so mm-hmm. it, it does have that. I don't think it hits that note as hard because kind of like with the film noir element of it. Well, I'm not even gonna say the movie loses interest in that track, but I think it's just uh, it evolves into being this much more complex romance story. But uh, yeah, it's still there. And I think it's still very pointed uh, as kind of a, an indictment of Hollywood and the corrupting influence that it has. Yeah, it's not. Uh, it doesn't hit Hollywood as hard as the other as Sunset and All About Eve. Uh, we, you know, we don't get a, a huge sense of like the inner workings, right? The only Hollywood characters we really see. I mean, this is a very small cast movie, right? Yeah. You have Dix and Laurel, Dix's agent, Charlie, um, the detectives. Uh, so there's not a huge cast. No. And really, Dix is the is the largest fixture we see of Hollywood, and we really only see him working on scripts. For, well, for this one particular adaptation of this pulp romance novel he's working on. Yeah. Uh, and we know that and, Laurel's like a washed up actress too. Like, so she's been kind right. of burned by this system as well. Yeah. Right. But we don't get a whole lot of history of what Dix has worked on. Right. He talks a little bit about how he's written a bunch of movies with murders and that's how he's familiar with how crime works. Yeah. Uh, but we don't, you know, we don't have a good history of, of what uh, he's been working on or, or what his big hits were per se. Um, but as you, yeah, as you said, the movie is much more interested in the character relationships and the romance than it is in Hollywood. Hollywood is more of, of a background player. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So the plot is kind of set into motion when uh, Dix has he, – he's got a job to adapt a book into a screenplay, but he has no interest in reading the book at all. So he gives it to the hat check girl at his favorite bar. And then he brings her home with him so that she can summarize the book for him. And then he can write the screenplay that way, which may have been what happened with this book. I don't know. (laughs) He just had it loosely (laughs) described to him. He wasn't really listening and then just wrote his own thing. Um, But she. uh, There's a lot of interesting dancing, Hayes Code dancing around here. Yeah. uh, About right how Mildred, who's the the hatchet girl, you know, she has she has a bow um, she has to cancel her date to go home with, uh, with Dix. Uh, but she, uh, first of all, she's very put off when Dix invites her to come, to come home. Yeah. Uh, he has to be like, Oh, it's not that kind of, of kind of date. I just wanted you to read this book. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of innuendo in these opening scenes between Dixon and Mildred, especially when he comes out in, uh, like kind of a smoking jacket robe kind of thing, which I, I put in my notes, that is a dope robe and I want it. Uh, it looks very cozy and very cool. Uh, but he, yeah, he, yeah, it's, you're exactly right. Like there are these connotations that maybe he's kind of picking up on this young girl and I don't think that's ever actually his intention because he's bored with her pretty quickly. He he finds her tedious. She keeps mispronouncing words. 
But Ray does some interesting stuff with the camera here because while she's recounting this story, like Dix kind of steps off into another room and the actress, whose name coincidentally is Martha Stewart, uh, not that one, uh, she is looking right down the barrel of the camera. Like she is recounting this to us, like making eye contact with us. And when we hear Dix talk, he's off screen somewhere. So like it's like she's pitching to us and we're supposed to kind of be like absorbing this little bit and kind of seeing... I don't know what the movie wants us to think of her, you know, because he seems to think she's kind of vapid and um, a little flighty, but like she also did the reading that he didn't want to do. So, you know, uh, she, she's treated a little dismissively, but. Yeah, I mean, I think we're not supposed to think very much of the book. Uh, yeah. Which Althea Bruce, I think, is the title of it. It's, yeah. She kept saying uh, Althea. Yeah. She kept mispronouncing the name. Right. It sounds like. Um, like almost like a Danielle Steele novel. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, I think we're supposed to be, our position is supposed to be if, if anyone is interested in this type of book, they must be a dunce. Yeah. Uh, and it's clearly yeah. like, yeah, it is clearly just like a pulp entertainment that he doesn't, uh-huh. he's, he considers it beneath his abilities, but he hasn't uh-huh. written a hit in a long time. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Also, I have to remember ginger ale with a twist of lemon, a horse's neck. That's what that's called. And apparently, if you put booze in it, it's called a stiff horse's neck. Oh, okay. Ah, so good to know. Yeah, I, I do. I like the line. I wonder what this meant because at one point, Mildred looks right down the camera and she says, "I do hope it's in Technicolor." Like it, it almost feels like they're making a dig at the studio somehow. Like I'm wondering, maybe they didn't spring for color. I'm glad they didn't. I think the black and white suits us so much better. But like, she looks very eager for this movie to be in color. And it seemed like it was kind of a pointed statement to me. I don't know. Maybe um, it's another kind of uh, a way to establish her kind of shallowness and that like, oh, she wants to see because a lot of focus on like uh, this, this uh, the main character of this pulp romance. One of them is like this young lifeguard. Yeah. Uh, so maybe like she's like, oh, I want to see I want to see this beefy lifeguard in Technicolor. And uh, very importantly during this time while she's recounting this story and Dix is puttering around the apartment he looks out his window and he sees in the apartment across the uh, square uh, mm-hmm. Laurel Gray who is this beautiful blonde who seems to be very fascinated with him her apartment is like slightly elevated above his apartment so he can she can see into his place but he can't see into hers so right away we're establishing kind of a dominance so it's like we want to feel like she she seems to have the edge on him. She knows more than she's letting on. And that also was kind of feeding into my perception that she's going to turn out to be the murderer, you know, but uh, again, like you said, the murderer is very incidental, but Mildred leaves. He gives her cab fare more than, uh, more than she needs. And uh, she goes home. And then later that night, he's uh, Dix is awakened by his friend, Brub. The names in this are insane. Brub. Like, is that, I, I, what is that short for? Brubaker? Brubba, brubble, 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 brubble. I have no idea. It's not, it's never established as a nickname. It's in the credits. It's just brub. Just so I brub. No yeah. I think they, I mean, we're supposed to assume they're our, uh, they're war buddies. Yeah. Yeah. He was, uh, Dix was his CO. Right. So it's, I don't know if it was a nickname from the service or, or what. Yeah. Yeah. It must be. They never go into it, but I just love the names in this. There's a guy named Dix and a guy named Brub. And the actress playing Brub's wife is named Jeff. So mm-hmm. all kinds of interesting little, uh, just little, I don't know. I like names. I like weird names. 
Uh, yeah, and so uh, he's awakened in the middle of the night and brought down to the police station because they want to interview him because poor Mildred has turned up uh, murdered off a freeway um, and she's been strangled to death as if by the crook of someone's arm. And we don't know exactly what's happening right away. We see the police talking to him. They're like in the middle of their interview. And then the captain gets up and he kind of reveals, he's like, I just showed you, I just told you the girl that you were spending the night with turned up dead and you had no reaction whatsoever. That's kind of how we learn. We learn after he learns so that we don't need to see that reaction. And that's just kind of building up the ambiguity of it. You know, we, we, we would infer too much if we saw how he reacted. You know, mm-hmm. instead we're just being told how he reacted. But he is very cool and calm about all this. And they also bring in another potential witness, which is Laurel Gray, his neighbor. This is when they first get to have an interaction with each other. And let me tell you, the chemistry and the heat in this scene is palpable. Like the way these two look at each other, it's like, it, it's really incredible. And you can really feel the heat and the chemistry between these two actors. And it sets up like how passionate this romance is going to be and how like instantly connected they are. You know, we talked a little bit about the title, you know, the, the title in a lonely place comes from when the scene where Dix a little later is describing how the murder could have possibly happened. And he takes her to a lonely place. So it's a place where people go to die is a lonely place. And that's also where Dix has been mentally for the last several years. He has been in this lonely place because as people point out multiple times throughout the movie, he's weird. He's off-putting. He people don't quite know what to make of him. Like he's very hot and cold. Like he'll, you know, the first time when we're in the uh, the diner scene in the beginning, he meets with an actress who we later learn he like physically beats up mm-hmm. on a set, and she even says something like, "It's like, do you hate all women or just me?" You know. So it's kind of feeding into this idea that he might be like a misogynistic killer, but. I think that's kind of the truth. The, the lonely place is where you go to die, and that's where these two characters have been for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And now they're in this lonely place together, and it's just going to make them die together. You know, it doesn't really solve anything for them. My understanding was that originally uh, they were going to try to cast Lord McCall uh, in the in the Laurel role. Yeah, uh, but because this was a um, this was produced by Bogart's production company. Uh, WB would not uh, allow Bacall to be loaned out. Right, yeah, uh, she was under contract still. Right, so they went with Gloria Graham, which, you know, Gloria Graham does a fantastic job here as well, and I think, uh, I, I don't think it would have been the same movie uh, with Bacall uh, without the Ray-Graham relationship kind of driving this. I agree, I agree, and I'm glad that, like, uh, Ray actually really, really pushed for Graham to get this part, despite the problems that they were having in their real life. He just genuinely believed she was a great actress who could do this. I think this is uh, my first leading role I've seen Gloria Graham in. I was familiar with her, of course, from It's a Wonderful Life. I've seen her in Oklahoma and a few other movies, but uh, this is kind of a big leading role for her. And I think she is just astounding. Like, she is astoundingly good. She plays it very close to the chest for a lot of the time, but she also conveys an incredible amount of vulnerability uh, and it is just, just brilliant. I think she's brilliant in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they, they kind of enter into this great, like intense, uh, relationship with each other. They, they're, it's one of those great fifties couples where they're like, 
intellectual equals and they spar, you know, and they, it's, it's really cool. Like their courtship is like so fast because in movies, it's always like, I've known you an hour. I love you, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it, things seem to be going really well for both of them. They're very happy. Dix isn't drinking as much. He's writing more. He's productive. He's focused, you know, it's, uh, it's, things are going well for him. But this specter of murder keeps hanging over their heads. And Brub has been kind of pushed by his captain to ingratiate himself with uh, with Dix and just kind of try and draw something out because he just he smells a rat. And so Brub has to do kind of this interesting, like, straddling a line sort of thing of, like, genuinely wanting to hang out with this friend who he likes and hasn't seen in a while while also keeping signs that he's a murderer. Uh -huh. And there's an important character in Brub's wife, Sylvia, because from the get-go, she does not trust this man. Uh, uh -huh. She has a sense about him, and I think she senses that he can be particularly cruel and dismissive to women. And she just gets a sense of it. And you mentioned it earlier, but I think the scene at their dinner party where he's describing how he would have committed the murder, and in the meantime, Brub is kind of almost acting it out on his wife, putting his arm around her neck, and we're focusing entirely on Bogart's face during this time. We're not watching him strangle his wife, but we can see like the lighting is like focused on his face and we can see this kind of malicious glee coming over his face as he's describing this. Uh -huh. And after a while, like Sylvia has to ask Brub to stop because she's getting scared. He immediately uh -huh. snaps out of it for what it's worth, but he was in this reverie for a second. Um, it's a really incredibly intense scene. Uh, and it really kind of sets up the central conflict of most of the second act of the movie, which is Laurel questioning if he actually is this murderous monster that uh, the police think that he is. And she's looking for signs in his behavior. I just want to uh, I just want to go back a second. Yeah, because to me. So I think, right. One of the most famous scenes is this, is this reenactment scene. Yeah. Uh, during the dinner party. Um, but for me, I think one of the most terrifying parts of the movie comes directly after that mm. where uh, uh, Dixon is left for the night. Brub and Sylvia are left alone and they're having kind of a debrief uh, of what just happened. As, as you mentioned, Sylvia is very off put by yeah. Dixon. Uh, she feels like he, he is almost certainly the murderer. <laughs> and uh, so Sylvia and Brub are having this argument uh, and Sylvia says, well, when I took a abnormal psychology class in college and Brub immediately says, you always do that. You always throw college in my face that I never went to college. Mm -hmm. uh, and we see Sylvia kind of have to turn at this point. She says, well, OK, I, you know, I, I concede your point that Dixon is a genius, that he's a brilliant man, uh, but I would prefer to have someone like you who is handsome and average. Yeah, yeah. And we see, we see Brub, you know, Brub's ego has obviously been bruised, and Sylvia walks away, but then pauses for a second, and she realizes she has to go back and kind of make up with this man. She goes back and gives him a kiss. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this, this is kind of a scene that only now, to me, uh, kind of makes sense in the context, in a more contemporary context, right? So this this woman has to kind of go back and console this man. He has a bruised ego, uh, and I think if this 
movie were remade today, there would be more terror in her face yeah. during the situation. Because she has just experienced a man who potentially was going to strangle her to death. Yeah. Uh, and he still has that ability to do that. Um, and so it's, it's fascinating to me um, that, that, this, that, that the scene is in the movie. And I think uh, it's expounded upon further in, in Laurel's point of view mm. uh, towards, the, towards the final act of the movie where she is put in this impossible situation where she, she is afraid for her life. So her only chance is that she's going to marry Dixon right. uh, uh, and keep him happy. That's the thing. Um, yeah. The, it's, it's like in, inferred that the, the inherent role of the women in the society is to placate the men. And we keep coming back over and over to uh, the phrase artistic temperament. They keep using mm-hmm. that for mm-hmm. Dixon. And I think that's kind of hitting the satirical element of the Hollywood part uh, home a little mm-hmm. bit further because it, it's his creativity is born of this rage and his rage is born mm-hmm. of this creativity. And again, it's this thing that he keeps infecting. But it's also people are willing to look past it because – He's an artist, you know, artists are like this, you know, we have to make accommodations for the artists. It doesn't matter if they're a total asshole to us, they're being artistic and that keeps coming around over and over. And that's how Dix has gotten this far in his life and has been able to coast and have a successful career while still treating people like shit, like so often, you know, so it's, uh, that's, that's an interesting indictment there. And I think that's a very interesting point about like that scene. I, that scene stood out to me as well. And mm-hmm. at first I just thought it's like, oh, we're getting a nice little bit of a, a, a nice little slice of their marital life. So we just kind of fleshing out the characters a little bit. But I think putting it like that is really a, a good point. Like it's about placation. It's about it's about calming the man's tempers and their egos. And, you know, even though she's she's gone to college, she might know more about this subject than he does. But uh, before he can even hear it he's just immediately shutting it down he's just like oh yeah. oh blah 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 college blah, blah, blah. you think you're better than me blah blah mm-hmm. so it's kind of the uh the mentality that's infected a lot of things recently and i'm, I'm not gonna comment further on that um yes yeah, so uh things start to kind of escalate between uh uh dicks and laurel uh things kind of start to go a little bit off the rails he's drinking more he's still quick to anger they have a beach party with Sylvia and uh, uh, Brub that ends poorly, uh, and it ends with like him trying to drive off and uh, Laurel barely making it into the car before he drives off. And then as they're driving, it's like he is taking her where? He is taking her to a lonely place. They are uh-huh. snaking out way into the wilderness because he is angry driving. He's cutting off traffic. He's like just being reckless and stupid. And when they finally do stop, he puts his arm around her neck in the exact same way that they did at the recreation. And I can't imagine that was unintentional on Dix's part. Like, I have to imagine in his mind, like, he he knows what this gesture means. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he knows what it's conveying. And I think, like, what we're seeing here is is a classic abuser mentality. And it's it's interesting to see this level of uh, of physical and emotional abuse portrayed in a movie from the fifties in such a clear cut way. Like, I think you see this kind of behavior in abusers today, you know, it's the same kind of controlling, uh, sensitive, like all flowers and sunshine one minute and then violent rage the next, you know, it's 
we're we're getting a really sharp like psychological profile on this character. But mm-hmm. again, that, that specter still hangs over the movie. Is he capable of murder? He's capable of great violence. Is he capable of murder? This is also where, as you pointed out, they encounter this high school football star. Firstly, he's going out in traffic looking for an opportunity to start a fight. He cuts mm-hmm. a guy off intentionally. The guy pulls off, and he, they they get into it. And it's culminating with Dick's about to smash this guy's head with a rock. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah. And, and again, the movie is still kind of gauzy in the way that it presents this. Because, yes, we are seeing that in this situation, he might be out of control, but Laurel is there to stop him. But also he wouldn't necessarily be in the situation if he didn't know Laurel. So like, it's all still kind of circumspect. Like we don't really know what's going on in his head uh, or if he would have actually killed this kid. So I should say too, that kind of one of the through lines through this, this Dixon Laurel relationship is that he's still right. Brub and, and Brub's partner Lochner are still very much investigating Dixon for the murder of Mildred. Yeah. Uh, and we see several scenes where, where Lochner is tailing Dix uh, and Laurel. Uh, they, they're actually out in the town, a date and Lochner and his girl show up coincidentally. Uh, and the inciting incident at this beach party is that Sylvia offhand says, Oh, uh, 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 when, when, uh, when Dixon and Laurel get married, uh, Lochner will come to the to the wedding. Yeah, and this sets Dix off. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's you could see that potentially this this rage uh, is him uh, using this football player as a stand-in for the police. Yeah, absolutely. There's another great line that I missed during the inter- uh, the the reenactment scene where he said that uh, we in Hollywood have great respect for cadavers. He says, we dress them up. We make them into icons. You know, we, we don't uh, leave them like trash on the side of the road like this girl was. And that's, that's him claiming uh, his innocence in that situation. Uh-huh. Uh, but things continue to escalate. Uh, Dix has a run-in with his uh, longtime manager who he punches in the eye in public and just makes this big, horrible scene. And note his uh, uh, traditional, like, non-apology where he goes in and says, uh, are you all right? Did I break your glasses? Do I need to find a new agent? Remind me to buy you another tie. Mm-hmm. You notice he never said he was sorry at any point in there, you know. But this upsets Laurel. Laurel goes home. She starts planning to leave. She is packing. She bought a plane ticket to New York. She sees the writing on the wall and she thinks she needs to get out of here before she gets hurt. But of course, Dix comes home. He sees that she's packing. And we get that really scary moment where almost within seconds, He's sitting there full of remorse, promising he's never going to do anything like what he just did in the restaurant again. And then it's almost immediately, it's almost the next line, he looks and sees that her door is locked and he starts like getting pushy and inquisitive and defensive and and he's he's starting to posture like he's going to get violent. And then things keep going from there. She's trying to lie her way out of this situation. And this builds up to an escalation uh, and it, oh, I guess the important thing to note at the in the meantime, this is intercut with shots of the police where they just casually resolve the murder. Mm-hmm. This casually, yeah. it, it's been happening in the background. They caught this guy named Kessler. Kessler is the murderer. They've got him on confession, and uh, uh, Dix is free and clear. And so mm-hmm. Brub is going to call him and let him know that he's free and clear. But mm-hmm. in the meantime, this scene between Dix and Laurel is getting worse and worse. And it's cul- it culminates with 
Dixon trying to strangle Laurel. He's got her pinned to the bed. His hand is on her neck. And he almost goes through with it before he realizes kind of what he's doing and comes to his senses. And as he gets up and walks away, she answers the phone. And it's Brub. He tells him that he's in the clear. And uh, her line is very, very poignant. She says, yesterday this would have meant so much to us. Now it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. Mm-hmm. And she gets to repeat the famous line uh, from earlier in the movie that's kind of set up. It's like a screenplay item. She says, uh, uh, I was born when he loved me, or I was I was born when I, I met him. I died when he left me for the few weeks together, or for the few weeks he loved me, I lived. Uh, and I'm probably butchering that a little bit, but it's a, it's a, like it's kind of couched in the movie as like this cornball line, but it mm-hmm. takes on so much more intimacy and urgency in this context. The original mm-hmm. script was going to have like the final shot of the movie was going to be a close up of his typewriter where that line was typed out as he's being carried, uh, dragged away in handcuffs. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's so much better to see this, you know, and the last thing we see is him looking back mournfully. He's going back to his apartment across the way and things are just over between them. I will say, I mean, this is the one part of the movie that does leave a, a bit of a sour taste in my mouth mm. uh, because this line originates during the moment in the car where, where Dick's, uh, is kind of uh, seems like he's about to assault Laurel, right? Right. Yeah. He makes her say it, right? He's like, "Oh, I come up, I came up with this line uh, for the screenplay. I don't know where to put it, uh, but say it back to me." Yeah. And he's kind of inching over to her in the car. That's when he puts his arm around her, and it's like this this profession of love came during this moment of emotional and potentially physical abuse. Yeah. Uh, So for her to kind of regurgitate this line at a very poignant moment in the movie, I don't, I'm not sure if that totally works for me. Okay. No, that's an interesting take. I could see where you're coming from on that because yeah, it Mm -hmm. is like, yeah, yeah. Because the context of when she has to read it back is when he's kind of descending into his controlling behavior. And you notice that too going on. It, it, It builds gradually. Like she'll ask him where he was. He immediately just says, none of your business. He's like, Mm -hmm. I'm going to a party. He doesn't ask. He's just, I'm going, you know, uh, when he proposes to her and she says, yes, he just like leaves. It's like, (laughs) he doesn't say like, oh, thank you. Or, oh, great. Or, or I'm so excited. He just kind of leaves. And then, uh, uh, you know, so he's starting to just get more and more brusque with her as it goes. But yeah, I, I could see where you're coming from with that. It does feel there, there's a bittersweetness to it. Like, I feel Mm -hmm. like, um, I feel like she is commenting more on the loss of this, idealized love affair that she had in her head Mm -hmm. rather than the loss of this specific man or like feelings that she had for this specific man. I think, I think they had both built this up into something that was going to fix them. I think Mm -hmm. they both thought like they both recognized that this person is as damaged as I am in their own ways. And we can heal each other, you know, because we connect, we understand each other. We've both been there and we get it. Um, but it turns out you're just mixing two, you know, volatile chemicals together and uh, things are just going to blow. And yeah, that like the line in there, you know, like Mel, his agent, who's been apologizing for him for 20 years, he just says the man's dynamite. Sometimes he's going to blow up, uh, which is just it's again, it's the justification. It's it's why Roman Polanski got to make so many movies in Hollywood. It's why Woody mm-hmm. Allen still gets to make movies with major movie stars. It's, it's because like people are willing to overlook a lot. If you make a great movie, if you're a great 
artist, you know? Um, and it, it's, it, it feel it makes the movie feel all the more relevant. Like this is a seven year old movie and it feels very fresh and very, uh, very raw and very real. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I absolutely loved this movie. I loved digging into it. I want to watch it again and like, look for all the little intricacies that I missed. I think this is just, uh, fantastic movie uh and like i said again it's on amazon prime if you have that subscription it's free on there it's on tubi that requires no subscription definitely check it out and uh let us know what you think right into uh rogers list pod at gmail.com or on twitter or on instagram that's my same thing carl thank you so so much for being here i really appreciate it it's it's a it was a great movie a great discussion so thank you yeah absolutely thanks for having me and yeah, it was a welcome distraction from current events. Yeah, so. absolutely, absolutely. But glad to have it. Do you uh, do you have anything that you'd like to plug? Any projects or social media or anything you'd like people to know about? No, not really. I'd just say, I mean, check out In a Lonely Place. It's yeah. a fantastic movie. And just generally a, just generally a cool dude. So I, yeah. I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Um, next week, you're going to want to tune in because we are talking about a tonally very different movie uh, from a similar time period. We are talking about the movie The Bandwagon, which is a bright, splashy musical with Fred Astaire and Sid Charisse. It's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. So we will see you next week for The Bandwagon. Thanks, everybody. Said somewhere that one day all good things come.